All right. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. We are coming to the very end of a series that we took 10 weeks to basically go through section by section of uh, the book of 1 John. And so we're on the final week. So this is kind of the wrap up session uh, for that. Uh, So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn. We're still in the middle of offering, aren't we? How embarrassing. You keep doing that, that's fine. Um, we're going to go ahead. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, you could, if you have a phone, you could certainly download uh, a Bible app and a free one is uh, uversion.com. And actually at uversion, you could find the notes uh, for today's sermon uh, right there. If you just go th- under events and search Manuka Bible Church, all the notes for today are right there for you, as well as the uh, scripture. So take a look at that. Um, while you're turning um, in your Bibles or, or paging onto your phone uh, to find 1 John chapter 5, just for context, uh, if you're just catching in with us right now, John is a guy who was, was the self-identified best friend of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He listened to Jesus teach. He saw this guy at, he saw the, the, the actual God-man combined all at once, walking day, day in, day out, all the way through. And so that, that is like just this massive thing. But not only that, he saw him die. And then he saw him rise from the grave. And if that wasn't enough, he heard Jesus say, now send this stuff that I've been teaching you and send it to the entire world. I know that you have bigotry about certain group, people groups and demographics. Throw that out the window. This goes to the entire world. Every single person this message has got to go to. And those, these good Jewish kid disciples actually took him at his word and went out into the pagan lands and did and communicated the message of the gospel. John is a guy who watches his friends drop like flies, bam, one after another, bam, one after another, bam, one after another, as each of them die for the faith, for the friend that they had, the Savior, Jesus. Except for John. John doesn't die. John grows old and watches all of his friends drop. And at the end of, actually the end of the Bible, we have the book of Revelation, which is the, the vision that God gave John while he was in prison for his faith on this island called Patmos. And so you've got John who, who's, who's got all this stuff that he's done. He's, he's written an account of Jesus' life and ministry in, in the book, in the gospel of John. And then he writes these letters, these three letters to the chur- this church in Ephesus. This church had serious baggage. Man, they were messed up. They were messed up because they didn't know how to love each other and they didn't know how to love anyone else. And the thing is, is John's like, you know, it's not even a love issue that you have. That's not your problem. I mean, it's part of your problem, but the source of your problem is you have a theological problem. You've messed up who Jesus is. And I'm, I'm telling you as a guy who walked with the guy that you got to stop listening to what other people that you're tight with, what they're telling you about Jesus, that he was like all God, but he wasn't really man. He was like a myth or he was like a phantom or a ghost. He looked human, but he really wasn't. I was with him. He was all man, and yet at the same time, he was all God. And if you get that right, and you understand what he did on the cross, it's a game changer for how we interact with one another. So in 1 John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verse 13, and then we're going to jump back and read the first couple of verses. So if you could stand as we read God's word. In verse 13, John says this, and again, he's, he's ending a letter I don't know how you end letters or end emails. Some of you like end them with all caps, but he wanted to end it encouraging. He wanted to like bolster the group of people that he's writing. And so he's encouraging them. He says this type of stuff. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know, you can know that you have eternal life. Not think, not believe, and you can know that you have eternal life. Jump back to verse, verse one of chapter five. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, 
This is love for God, to keep his commands. His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that we have in overcoming the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. He's writing these guys and he's saying to them, listen, I, I'm, and he starts, and you can listen, you can hear it in his voice. Listen, I want you to know that you can be victorious. I want you to know that you can be confident. I want you to know that you can actually overcome. Why is he you, talking like this? It's because everything in them and everything in us skews the opposite direction. We skew towards fear. And so that, I mean, that just brings us to the question, what scares you? What scares you? Like, I mean, automatically, right off, I, it's a rhetorical question, but last service, guys like, my job. Someone else raised their hand, my wife. And then he, she's right there. I'm like, she can take you. So why? you know, it, And it was like, it was that type of situation. So I'm not going to ask you. We have a lot of people here. But what scares you? Like now, for you right now, it might be like finance, finances and a financial situation or taxes or, or something that you're like, oh man, I, I, the thing that scares me is my own actions. I'm out of control. Or what scares you might be the future or, or some complication with the relationship that you're in. That's the thing that scares you. For you, it might be your kids. Your kids are freaking you out and you don't have any control and now you finally have realized it or your kids are out of the house and you're even more afraid. And whatever the case may be, what scares you, what scares you might, might be failure. It might be failure at school or failure in your grades or you're not gonna be able to get into the college you wanna go get into or, or someone rejecting you. That's like the ultimate fear, the thing that you're ultimately scared of. But what scares you? What scared you when you were a little kid? Okay, someone like the first thing that came out of someone's mouth last was sharks. Shark scared me. I, I, I. You know, that's, and that's, that's a fear. For me, I was a church kid. So I grew up in church, and I remember them saying, we got a film we're going to show you guys about the end of the world. And like, oh, so we're sitting there, and we're watching this, this apocalyptical end of the world thing about, you know, how the rapture happens, and then you've got like, like the book of Revelation just spewing across film. And there was one person, individual in this film, one, one person that scared me to death. Can you guess who that was about the end of the world? It wasn't Satan. Oh, you've heard of him too. Yes, the Antichrist. The Antichrist. Because I was like, I don't know who this guy is, but he's like, ah, the Antichrist. He's like, this, like he's going to be the superpower and he's going to make people take the mark and, and like, who? And all of a sudden, like, Christians are like, who is the Antichrist? Could we know him now? I bet you I know who he is. And Christians are writing books. I know who it is. And if you look on Google, if you do a search for it just to get a definition of it, it's got a pretty good definition. In some Christian teachings, a personal opponent of Christ expected to appear at the end of the world. For example, the battle between Christ and the Antichrist. Google has a pretty good definition of the Antichrist, but they have even better pictures of who the Antichrist is. If you go to Google Images, you're going to get a bipartisan approach to who the Antichrist is. You got Antichrist Trump, you got Antichrist Obama, you got Antichrist Putin, you got Marilyn Manson, you've got uh, this guy, I, I mean, you've got, oh, well, actually, that's not the Antichrist that actually is in a Google search. That's Pastor Brent. <laughs> And today is his 50th birthday. Right there. All right. But I digress. The Antichrist. The Antichrist is someone who I was absolutely 
terrified of. I was so scared of him. And, and actually, but if you, I mean, because I wasn't even thinking about what it was, just like Antichrist. It's like this capital A Antichrist person that I was terrified of. But let's break it down. It's a compound Greek word, anti, which of course means against, and Christos, which means the Messiah, the anointed one. In Greek, it's Christ, but, but in Hebrew, it's Messiah, Mashiach. It's, it's the anointed one. And so this is someone who's far more scarier than Antichrist Putin. This person is actually far more scary because this is someone, John, ironically, in the book of Revelation, you know how many times he uses the word Antichrist? Zero. Antichrist, the word, is nowhere in the book of Revelation. Now, chapter 13 talks about this, the beast and talks about this, this superpower, you know, uh, political figure that does all these things. Yeah, that's there. But Antichrist, John, who wrote the book of Revelation and wrote this, never mentions the Antichrist by word or name in the book of Revelation. He does, however, talk about the Antichrist many times in his letters. First, second, third, John. And, and in, in those, those letters, it, it, he's talking about someone who is, there's, he talks about a future individual for sure, but he says, but the, it's not future, it's now. He talks about someone who's against the person of Christ, someone who's against the, the work of the Messiah. In 2 John chapter, uh, verse 7, he says that the, the Antichrist is the person who denies that, that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, or in fact, that he's in fact God himself. In chapter two of, of this letter that we've been studying, 1 John chapter two, he says that the Antichrist is someone who doesn't, doesn't believe or, do, or teaches people not to believe that Jesus isn't the Messiah, that we, we believe that he always has been, the one that was prophesied from the beginning. But, but he expands it. He gets it even more like, uh, like wide than that as opposed to being just this one guy. Expands it says that there's like the spirit of the Antichrist, which is that we can, it's like all over everything. And it's basically anything that stands in opposition to the message of Jesus. Anything that stands in against, against the work and movement of Jesus in your life. And that should terrify you because that means that the Antichrist is alive and well in 2018. In fact, the Antichrist knows all of your movements. The Antichrist listens in on all of your conversations on your phone. The Antichrist actually sleeps in your bed and uses your toothbrush. Because the person that you should be the most afraid of, that it stands in opposition to the work of Christ in your life, is you and me. Of any person, any future political figure that I should be afraid of because of what the book of Revelation talks about, for sure. But I have far more fear about someone who's done far more damage to me than any antichrist-like political figure has ever done. The person that's done the most damage to my faith, the most damage to the work of Jesus in me, the, the person who's done that most in my life that I should be absolutely terrified is Errol McFadden. That's me. This means that to spot the Antichrist, you don't have to watch MSNBC, CNN, or Fox News to find him. You just look in the mirror. And this is why. Because this is a person who stands against the work of the Messiah. The, the, the work of the Messiah is, is the message of Christ and what he did on the cross. God created a world that we broke. And because we can't fix it relationally, and we certainly can't fix it like physically, all the, the physical implications of what's happened because of sin, God sent Jesus in love to rescue me and, and, and the created world from itself. I can't earn that. I can't buy it. I can't be good or moral enough to get it. It's simply something that I can receive. 
The love of God is something that I have to receive. In fact, John's big thing in this book is I need you to know, if we're going to talk about the definition of love, don't look at the most awesome romance that you know. Don't look at the epic couple that you wish that you were, or you had, that, like the same type of love like they had. Don't think about like uh, the love, the great love that your grandparent gave you that was phenomenal. This weekend's like grandparents, or today's grandparents day. Some of us had amazing grandparents and they loved us amazingly, but even that pales in comparison to the definition of what John is saying. John is saying that the love that God has given us, that's the foundation. It's something that we receive. There's this pastor up in St. Charles named Joe Thorne. I love what he, he had this great quote. He said, perhaps the reason your faith is small, your love is weak, and your obedience is sparse is because you have lost sight of the love of Jesus for you. The reason that you have a love problem or a faith problem or obedience problem is not because you're just immoral or you're just a jerk. It's because you, you've lost sight of the fact of how much God loves you. You can't love completely because you don't really believe it. And that's what John is speaking into. You know, one of the, when, why, why you keep coming to, through the Bible and you keep hearing God going, just talking about his love for us and throughout all the authors, like how much God loves us, how much God loves us. You think he's doing that just to like pump up our self-esteem? No, it's because we're schizophrenically forgetful about that. We don't believe it. We believe it in here, and then we go out there and we forget it. We don't believe it out there because, listen, it's one thing to believe that God loves everyone, but it's another thing to believe that God loves me. It's one thing to believe that God loves, like, the good people or the professional Christians or the really nice people that I know, but do you know what I've done? Do you know some of the mistakes that I've made that I cannot undo? Like, if I could undo it, if I could say I'm sorry, I could make it up, that'd be one thing, but there's... There's things I can't do that with. And John says, yep, he loves you so much. And if you were the only one on earth, Jesus didn't just like die on the cross because he knew some really good Christians that he could die for. Jesus died for the sin of mankind, which includes the worst of the worst, which includes yours. Now, if you received that, then all of a sudden you can actually own that, and that's foundational to what he wants to do next. Because once you've received it, this love from God, then you can actually release it. Once you've received it, then you can release it. This is something that he actually wants you to do. He wants to, to like actually cause something in you. And this is the other thing. You know why God talks so much in this book about loving, about how much God loves you? It's not just for you. It's that you become a channel, not a reservoir. It's that you become someone who actually says, I realize this perfect love that God's given me. And that doesn't mean that I'm just going to like hoard it. This is not an episode of hoarders where I, that I'm hoarding the love of God and holding it captive because it's all mine. And if I get rid of it, I'm going to be less. No, this is a reality that God's love comes to us and then we release it to others because we can never, we can never get rid of it uh, fast enough. We can never get, we, we, in the process of loving people in our world, we're never going to come to a point where we've lost God's love or we've spent it all. It's an ongoing, perpetual thing. And that's, that's something that actually brings us to the reality that that's scary. The reason that we have a, such a, a hard time re re receiving love is because sometimes we don't believe that God could actually love us. He does. But secondly, the reason that we have a hard time releasing it is because we're afraid. What about this person? Like, I'll love people who are super easy to love or the people that are respectful and kind to me, but I can't love people who are disrespectful to me. I've been disrespected too much in my life and I don't want to have that anymore. And God's like, no, I, my grace was for everyone. These are my kids that you're hating on. So, so all those parameters that we put around, not, not that person, nope, not that person, nope, not if they did that, 
God just kicks that to the curb because he says that is not the parameters. Yeah, does scripture call you to bring into your circle and make BFFs all people no matter how toxic they are? No, but it does call you to love them, to forgive them, and that is scary. But I gotta tell you that if you're someone who thinks of yourself as a strong Christian or maybe even a theologian, like, oh yes, I know so much about the Bible. I read commentaries and books by Christian authors. Great. Awesome. You want to be super theological? Go love people like Jesus loved them. That's good theology. You're a humanitarian or you're an activist, and you're like, I just want to do good for people. I want to, I want to bring goodness to people because people are in bad situations. Absolutely. You want to know the best way to bring the good to people? Actually love the people that are difficult to love in your life the way that he loves you. That's the best way that you could bring humanitarian efforts to this world. You're bored with life? I cannot imagine a more exciting life than you saying, okay, God, I believe that you love me, and not only do I believe that you love me, but I'm actually going to love people that are difficult for me to love. And you actually sign up for that. You're like, bring it on, God. He's going to bring people into your life. And I'm like, oh, I wasn't thinking about this person. I forgot about them. But then it's Thanksgiving, and here they are. (laughs) You will, if you're bored with life, you will not have a more exciting life with amazing accolades or amazing vacations or amazing bonuses or amazing friends. All that is great, but that pales in comparison to a life of the poorest person on planet Earth who simply says, I'm going to live a life where I'm receiving God's love and I'm going to show it to others. You do that, you will not have a bored life. You have a life where you want to end it. You're tired of the pain of life. You're ready to, you're ready to be done with life. You're just like, you're, you're ready to cash in. And you're, you're honestly right now contemplating the moment when you want to end it all. End it all. But end it all this way. End the life that was built around you being identified with your value being in how you look, how much you earn, what your grades are, how many friends you have. All the things we put ladders up against false walls that just crumble eventually and instead put your identity and the fact that you are truly loved by the creator of all things. And not only that, he's called you now to step into love. That's, that's a life. That's a life that you can live. The end of this passage that we just read before simply says, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, the cool thing about the Antichrist is that we know that, do we know the end of the story with the Antichrist and all of Satan's efforts? We know it because John wrote down the vision. And in the book of Revelation, though he doesn't mention the Antichrist, he does talk about the end of Satan's efforts. And you know how um, he says that Satan ultimately gets destroyed? You don't want to know the greatest way to overcome the enemy or the work of the Antichrist in your life? He says it's two things. One, it's the blood of the Lamb. It's what Jesus did for you on the cross. And it's the testimony of the saints. It's what Jesus did, and it's Christians actually being honest about the fact that he did it for them. Today, this weekend, we have 18 people, 18 people who are, are, are actually over, saying, I'm overcoming, not because I'm so strong, not because I'm so moral, but because I'm showing everyone what Jesus did for me, and I'm going to be honest about it. Baptism is a picture of a life that has ended. A life for myself, a life for all these false and phony things that I've been living for, and a resurrection into a life that's built and based around Christ, 
and his call in my life. That, that person is an overcomer. Now, here's the thing. If, if you're new to NBC, we have a, a tradition when it comes to baptisms. They go down under water, and so the water like goes over their ears, and for a second, all they're hearing is bloop, bloop, bloop. When they come out of the water, and the water's flowing off their head and coming out of their ear canal, and everything's all muffled, all of a sudden it goes from muffled to clear. The first sounds that they hear, the first audible notes that their eardrums pick up, it's cheering, it's applause. Not because they've done something spectacular, but because if you're a Christian, you see a picture of your faith, a faith that is connected to Christ's death and resurrection. And that is something to celebrate, amen? Amen. Let's take a look and listen to these stories.